Good morning. Happy Monday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A typical busy Monday. For those of you on IFAST University, we have a call at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're not on IFAST University, please go to ifastuniversity.com. Get yourself signed up so you can join us for the conference call at 1 p.m. All right, digging into today's Q&A. Uh, this came through email from Brady S. And he says, hi, Bill. Hi, Brady. Um, I have severely rounded shoulders, severely rounded shoulders, and I'm working hard to strengthen my upper back to pull my shoulders back. I'm making little, if any, progress. Any suggestions would be helpful. Thanks. Okay, so let's redefine what we're actually looking at. So what we're actually looking at under these circumstances is not a rounded shoulder problem per se. What we have is a rounded shoulder result. And so at minimum, you're looking at a, a sternal compressive strategy that is pushing the sternum down and back. The resultant is a, is a response of the shoulder girdle um, in its behavior relative to, to, this, to this down pump handle uh, situation. The way you're going to know this, Brady, is you're going to lose a lot of shoulder internal rotation under these circumstances. Um, depending on the other compressive strategies, you're going to see some other things. Um, occurring as the shoulder protracts, you're going to see a scapular elevation that's going to be associated with this. So, so if we can take a baby step back, the biggest problem that we have here is calling this thing a rounded shoulder because it it implies that your shoulder is going to get pulled forward by so-called tight muscles. So people say, well, you have tight pecs and it's pulling your shoulders forward and then you have weak scapular muscles. And so we end up with this, this uh, scenario of the stretch and strengthen crowd where people are gonna try to pull on, on um, pec muscles that are actually contracted and they're gonna try to pull back on scapular muscles and you're gonna end up with what looks like the before picture on the Terry project because Terry had a down pump handle. He had the rounded shoulder appearance and tried to fix it by constantly pulling back the scapula in a retracted state and therefore created a secondary postural issue as you can see in the picture. So we have a wrong model, therefore a wrong solution. So the position and more importantly, the movement of the shoulder girdle is very dependent on the shape of the thorax. And so this is gonna be dependent on your ability to compress and expand appropriately, which means that we've got to get airflow into the upper portion uh, of the thorax to restore a normal anterior posterior expansion, normal shoulder girdle representation, and therefore normal relative motions. And so if we think about people that are at this end game strategy. So, so this is gonna be somebody that's, that's gone through all of these superficial strategies and they're actually pulling the sternum downward with rectus abdominis. That has to be resolved first and foremost. So activities that are gonna help us um, resolve this and sort of free up the sternum so we can get the normal up pump handle situation. Actually, your developmental postures work really, really well under these circumstances um, because we've also got the iterative effect of, of this uh, increase in concentric orientation um, in the, the cervical spine as well. And so we're gonna kill two birds with one stone. We're also gonna be able to move the shoulder girdle into a, a position that does not require us to use a compensatory strategy. Our ERs move out and away from, from midline. And so we can actually use that space to our advantage to start to expand that, that space by reducing the concentric orientation of rectus abdominis and allowing the pump handle to come up. Now, 
Chances are, because we're so far into these superficial strategies, you're gonna be dealing with some anti-orientation of the pelvis and the thorax. That's going to need to be addressed as well. So rectus abdominis has to be resolved first, then go after your, your reorientation of the pelvis and the thorax. Once you're able to reorient the, the pelvis, we can start to worry about um, building the expansion back up into the thorax. And remember, the lungs fill from the bottom up, just like a glass of water, so we're gonna reduce the the posterior lower compressive strategy, we're gonna to start to expand the, the dorsal rostral. So activities like the seated uh, better band pull apart, standing version of better band pull apart is, is gonna be uh, useful as well. Um, as you start to gain shoulder range of motion and we can get the shoulder above the horizontal uh, without compensation, now we've got activities that we can do in quadruped, and some of our horizontal reaching activities are gonna fit the bill here. And this is where we're really gonna to start to see the pump handle um, start to come upward. Chances are if we wanna restore full excursion of the pump handle, we're gonna to work towards a position where the upper extremity is above shoulder level. And so this is where your inverted lazy bears are gonna come into play. Some of your overhead reaching activities, some of your pull down activities actually will be useful under these circumstances. So, so Brady, what I want you to think about though is that you're gonna deconstruct what you're looking at as far as the rounded shoulder posture is concerned. It's the shoulder is the result of the lack of expansion, especially in regards to, to the sternum. So thorax shape becomes your highest priority. Um, avoid, avoid interference. So the intentional retraction activities in an attempt to fix the shoulder girdle posture is not going to be a, an appropriate strategy under most circumstances. And then don't forget, you've got other superficial compressive strategies that you're probably gonna have to deal with. So hopefully, Brady, that answers some of your questions, give you some alternatives that you can utilize um, to restore your movement capabilities. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I'll see you later. Why did I suddenly have to use the disc in the first place? Because everything else is getting shoved forward. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and... It is perfect. All right. I had a great day yesterday. Um, I actually got to talk to Dr. Mike of NeuroCoffee fame um, yesterday for, for well over an hour. Haven't talked with him that long in a very long time. So we had a great conversation. A lot of good stuff coming from Dr. Mike. Um, if you're interested, he's got a minimally processed food challenge that is going on right now. I suggest that you you partake if you're trying to make some modifications and, and upgrade your eating behaviors. It's a great place for you to start. So go see Dr. Mike. Uh, Mike Roussel is, is who you're going to look for. Um, a little bit stressed too. Uh, IFAST is moving this week. So... Yeah, so we're packing up, packing up the uh, facility, moving down the street actually into a much bigger place. Um, so, so uh, a lot of stuff going on this week. Let's dig straight in to uh, today's Q and A. This is with Timus, and Timus had a question regarding one of the videos I did a, a while back in regards to uh, disc herniations. And um, the way we're modeling a disc herniation is as the yielding action 
um, as a focal yielding action versus a distributed yielding action. So, so typically what we're going to do here is we're going to try to recapture an early propulsive representation to alleviate the stress in the disc. In this conversation, we take it one step farther as far as further protecting the disc and how we would do that. Um, from a resource standpoint, this is where we're going to use uh, a lot of uh, Dr. Stuart McGill's representation, um, especially concepts like his big three. I'm not going to even go into that. You could just Google Stuart McGill big three. There's going to be hundreds of thousands of entries of people that have that have talked about it in the past. Um, but what we're going to do here to protect the disc is we're going to move people towards middle propulsion where we can alleviate the the uneven pressures on the disc and allow that to be protected um, under those circumstances. Um, if you need a resource, get Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. That's Dr. McGill's book. That's written for more of the broad scope um, general population. Uh, his technical book would be Low Back Disorders. Um, so again, two resources for you there. But uh, this is a great question for TMS. We covered a lot of ground in a very short period of time as far as understanding how this herniation would arise in the first place and then what to do about it. Um, so I hope you find it useful. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you later. Yeah, so uh, in one of your videos, you spoke about disc prolapse as being a yield in the disc. Yes. So you were trying to pick up the yield somewhere, and then somehow you hit the disc, and then you get the yield through it. Yes, sir. And I was wondering what, so theoretically speaking, uh, there are people that have this superficial compressive strategy at the lumbar spine, right? Yes. And there are people that create that uh, flexion orientation, let's say, through lumbar spine, right? Yes. Which ones are more likely to get that prolapse through the disc? Are the ones that allow the yield to go all the way through and sort of yield even to a superficial musculature? Or those who yield until the disc, but hit the constraint of the superficial musculature? Okay, so we have to. So what we have to do is we have to talk about the the sequence of events that leads to the potential to create the delay strategy in the disc. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the way this works is you have to have a progressive weakening of the posterior elements of the disc first. Okay. okay? That would be associated with a reduction in blood flow to mm -hmm. the vertebra. Okay. To the vertebra, where the greatest pressure is in the spine, which is typically mm -hmm. so. What what are the two most commonly herniated discs in the lumbar spine? L five S one. L five S one. L four five. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Reason being is because there's greater pressure on the posterior aspect of the disc under those circumstances. If I magnify that pressure, I reduce the blood flow to the, to the, to the vertebra. So the, the blood flow um, diffuse or the, the nutrition for a disc diffuses from the bone to the disc. Mm -hmm. So it's a bony side supply, right? If I reduce that, then I start to see a breakdown of the, of the disc. So you see like, you'll see the proteoglycan content of a disc start to break down. So that's the stuff that holds a disc together, right? Okay. And, and so, so you get the wearing away of that, okay? So that would precede um, the, the, the prolapsing. Okay. Because 
I have to have a reason to have to create the delay strategy. So if I'm shoving the spine forward first, I'm increasing that posterior compressive strategy, aren't I? Yes. So that precedes the, the, the disc because, but I'm still trying to create a yielding action somewhere to slow that side down. Mm -hmm. If the disc is weak enough, I can yes. use the disc now mm -hmm. okay. as the delay strategy. You see mm -hmm. it? Yeah. So you have yeah. you can't you can't just say that oh the disc is the delay. It's like well wait a minute why did I suddenly have to use the disc in the first place? Because everything else is getting shoved forward, mm -hmm. and I had the progressive destruction of the disc material itself that made it mm -hmm. weak enough to become the yield strategy. Okay, understood. Does that help? Yes, that actually actually is really helpful. I I had another thought in mind. Maybe you can. Uh, correct me on this one if that or tell me if that makes any sense uh, that the potential mechanism as well of that in play would be sort of the, the typical biomechanical uh, levers that we sort of cover in, in school is that that potentially if you have the posterior compression and you're starting to bend and then this stops the motion you get that sort of uh, this kind of effect on the disc where you create a very strong um, compressive force in opposition, if you create a compression and expansion, and you sort of just let, let the pressure go through the disc yeah. rather than accumulate in the disc, but would that be also something that plays a role in, in this? Well, that's problem? that's exactly what we just talked about. So that's okay. the yield, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So yes. so the yield the yield is posterior expansion. Yes. Yes. Well, how do you create posterior expansion in a disc? Well, you have to have compression on the opposite side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. And in that case, uh, how likely are you to speed up the healing process of herniation if you create a nice yield of the posterior superficial musculature? Okay, so here's the really cool thing about this. So we got. So this is this is process. All right. So first and foremost, herniation will represent a focal yielding action. You understand okay. that? Okay. Yes. Next thing I got to do is I got to create a distributed yielding action. Mm -hmm. That would be early propulsion. Yes. Do I want that disc to remain in its, in its expanded representation in a distributed yield? No. Absolutely not. Guess where you got to take them then? Back to max P? God, no. Don't do no. that. Don't do that. That'll hurt. Okay. Where is the disc, where is the disc safest from posterior expansion? Um, late, maybe? Late ER? How about we do this? Um, uh -huh. Have you ever done a bird dog exercise? Bird dog, I'm not sure exactly, no. All fours, extend the uh -huh. extend one leg back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yes. that's, a, that's a bird dog. Okay. What position is that in, in regards to propulsive strategies? That is, uh, I suppose it's a mint. Dead middle. It's dead yeah. middle. Yeah. Yeah. Now you know why you use those activities. Uh huh. So you, after you create the yield, you bring it back to the middle, right? So you you. Yeah. So I need a distributed yield to take the to take the demand off of that one segment. Mm -hmm. But I also need I need to put the disc in a, a relative position where there is no posterior expansion. Yes. Stick them in the middle. Mm -hmm. Right, and then train yeah. them to to maintain that representation over a longer period of time. Like, did you, anybody mm -hmm. see the light bulb go off in Jordan's head right now? 
Did you hear that or see it? Did, am I right? Am I right, dude? <laughs> Many so of those. Is, so this is, this. We, 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 we tend to talk about capture early, capture early, get relative motion, get relative motion. It's like, yes, but now I have to think about the structure. It's like, mm -hmm. if I want that disc to, to um, um, regain some of its resiliency, I got to take the expansive strategy away, right? Otherwise, I'm just prolonging because it's already changed, yes, right? Yes. I've got a, I've got a, I've got a tissue change now that I have to protect. It would be mm -hmm. like um, if you if you had an inversion sprain of your of your right ankle, mm -hmm. right? And then because that so when you when you have an inversion sprain of like anterior talofib. That is an early representation of a foot, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Okay. That's where a lot of relative motion is, but that's yeah. where the strain occurred, mm -hmm. right? Do I want to leave it in early representation? Because that's mm -hmm. where all the relative motion, it's like, no, right. I'm going to move you back to middle because that's where I'm, I'm going to be able to take the tension off of that ligament. Mm -hmm. you see it? I see, I see, I see. That yeah. makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that actually clears yeah. up a lot. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's, that's great. Thank you. May be helpful, but let's understand what the, what the potential consequences are here. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, it is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Coffee and Coaches Conference Call as usual. Always great calls, great questions, um, lots of fun. Please join us. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call at 6 a.m. So I'll see you then. All right, digging into today's Q&A. This is with Jordan. Um, Jordan has a great question. Um, we talk about influencing foot mechanics a lot of times by, by placing arches in, in shoes or orthotics. And a lot of these strategies are to influence the rate at which certain things happen. So when we talk about our, our propulsive phase of the foot, you know, we've got our, our heel rocker, we have our ankle rocker, and then we've got the toe rocker. And, and the timing of each of those is influential as far as what the output's going to be in regards to how we uh, demonstrate internal rotations and external rotations. Um, this conversation um, had to do with actually putting a, a, a lateral wedge underneath the calcaneus to accelerate the ability to get the medial calcaneus um, to the ground. Um, sometimes can be very useful, um, but there's always secondary consequences to everything that you're going to do under these circumstances. And so the thing that I want you to recognize here is, is that um, if you can understand those secondary consequences, then we can be a little bit more judicious as to how we're going to apply these things, um, whether we're gonna use them for extended periods of time and how do we determine how long or when we're going to actually use them? So, so Jordan asked a great question here. I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of people, especially in regards to um, foot mechanics and wheres and whens. Okay. So if you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., uh, for the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Everybody have an outstanding day. I'll see you later. Um, I guess it just made me think about it, but um, are these the people that have a hard time getting into that medial they kind of skip around mid propulsion. They're having trouble getting into the medial aspect of the calcaneus. Is that whether it's like baseball or cricket, whomever, 
Um, are those the type of people you might actually use like a lateral wedge if it doesn't hinder their performance, assuming? Um, I rarely hear about ever using, you always, most people I've been around, I always say like never use a lateral wedge for whatever reason in terms of orthotics, but would this scenario be like possibly beneficial? Um, that's a big fat maybe. Yeah. I mean, from, from a concept standpoint, yes, but, but let me offer you this. If I, if I give you a medial wedge, okay. What did I just take away from you? What are the consequences? What, so, so there might be a benefit to get the medial foot contact with a lateral wedge. Okay. Right. But what is the secondary consequence of giving somebody a lateral wedge? Shortening mid propulsion. What did you take away? Like what can they no longer do? Pronate. That, that, that would be a normal natural representation of stepping forward. Pronate. No. So you're, so you're going to drive them towards so you're going to drive them towards middle in, at a faster rate by putting a lateral wedge in the shoe. Okay. What, where do you initially contact the ground when you step forward towards early propulsion? Lateral aspect. Yes. So you're taking away, you're taking away a lateral foot contact. Okay. Now, and again, maybe there's a benefit to this to, to allow them to capture middle more effectively but understand what this potential secondary consequences are, right? So if I land, if I, if, I, if I try to make a lateral heel contact and I immediately get pushed to, to, to the uh, medial aspect of the, of the calcaneus, okay? You just accelerated me in that direction very quickly, right? So now, um, here's what I wanna do. Um, Try landing on your medial foot, stepping forward, okay? And then, um, and not internally rotating the tibia. It's hard. It is hard, it's very hard, okay? So do I wanna land? Do I wanna land in that representation? Now, what would be, Another potential consequence. So if I take away the ER position at ground contact, do you think you're gonna to try to find the ER representation somewhere else? Probably. Probably, okay. That's a really good answer, actually. Okay, now think about where it might show up. I'm imagining upper extremity or the don't even go that far like you don't even need oh, to go that far don't name. go that far yeah yeah okay oh, so that, oh yeah uh-huh so you see the foot so you see the foot slam down into into the medial foot contact but the tibia stays out right you see it it just goes right up your leg because i because i'm i need i need my er representation to get me into the position if i take away if I take away that lateral foot contact, then I'm, my starting conditions have changed. I'm gonna land in middle, but I'm still gonna try to stay ER. So where do you think the center of gravity is gonna wanna go as I'm, as I'm landing in an early propulsive foot? If you're landing in early propulsive? I'm trying to land in early, but oh, you, you, took, away, you took away my early foot. Right, so probably outwards, outside. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so, so now my center of gravity is going to try to stay lateral. Well, how do I do that? I twist the entire leg into external rotation. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I won't say that it's never helpful. Okay. But you just have to understand what the potential consequences are because the minute you do something like that, and then let's just say that you're initially successful. It, it, using it as a permanent strategy may not be the future representation of what you're trying to do. Got it. You get it? Oh, yeah. Just be yeah. careful of the consequences. It, All right. You, you, you have to understand what the consequences are because jamming somebody's, again, you gotta be really, really careful. It's like, we know where the ERs are. We know where the IRs are supposed to be. Right. And so again, if I, if I, it, it's, just, it's like, um, here you go. You, why do you put an arch into, into a shoe um, in regards to the translation of the tibia? What happens to the tibia when you put an arch in the shoe? Slows it down. It slows it down. Okay. If I put a lateral wedge, if I put a lateral wedge in, in a shoe, what did you just accelerate? Yeah, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. So you see, you see, you see, it's like, yes, it may be helpful, but let's understand what the, what the potential consequences are here. Right. Don't blindly say this is better. Say this is what's going to happen. Maybe it's a good thing. Get it? Yep. Makes a lot Very of cool. sense. All yeah. right. Thank well, you. Uh huh. Here's the mistake. You called it a glute bridge. Right. Okay? Right. So, so hang on. So right away, you're thinking muscle, glute max. All I got to do is get you to feel a glute max. Right. When the reality is, is that it's a little bit more complex than that. You mentioned asymmetrical hook line um, sure. in response to uh, Alex's question. Yeah. And I just realized that I don't really have a good idea of how to set it up asymmetrically. So the, the tools in my toolbox, I have like hook line with two feet and a yoga block in between the knees. I have hook line with a ball between the knees so that you can manipulate propulsion a little bit. Um, and then I have once upon a time used um, like elevating one of the feet on the block. So like for a right oblique, like bringing the right foot up to make the right side longer. Right. Um, I was just wondering if you could uh, maybe elaborate on the idea of asymmetrical hook line, what to look out for, how to use it. Okay. So um all of your options that you're using right now are, are viable. Assuming that, assuming you, that you understand how you're positioning people, um, especially when you're trying to reduce the concentric orientation at the posterior lower. Okay. So all of those are all viable. Um, the asymmetrical hook line would be it, like in its simplest representation. If you started with both legs, even in hook line and you bring one knee up to your chest, that's asymmetrical. About, so like if you were doing like a hook line cross connect, that would be the that would be the position that you would be in would be the asymmetrical hook line. And then you'd cue people to push through the grounded toe kind of back into that. Not through the grounded toe. Heel. Okay. That would. Yeah. If So if you push through the grounded toe, here's what's going to happen. OK. Um, after they quit complaining about the massive cramp that they just got in their hamstring. Okay. And they berate you for that. Okay. 
Yeah, you're not going to what, what, what's going to happen is you're not going to pick up the internal rotation that you need to create the the early the the um, you want to hang on to some internal rotation as you're pushing into the table. If you don't, then you get it too much of an ER representation and you drive them so far into late that you actually just kind of screw up the activity. That's why you got to maintain the uh, medial foot contact heavier towards the heel than the mm. toe. OK, it'll help you maintain it. So the, the thing you always want to remember is that, is that when they're laying on the table, they're in middle and you're moving them away from middle. Right. Right. Okay. And, and again, so uh, you got to make sure that you're hanging on to some measure of the IR, which is the medial foot contact. Got it. And then what would you do? That's, that's, that's very helpful. What would you do if, um, I'm assuming that just putting the block between the knees, um, is not always enough to get rid of the posterior lower compression. Like I've, I've seen some people, it seems like they have to crunch um, to get there. Sometimes. Um, is, is there a way that you could manipulate the position to, to access um, a better representation, manipulate the cueing, or is that simply a case where it's like, all right, let's find something else to do? Um. What, what's so, so even like a block between the knees, like they're still kind of doing the thing. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so some people have a really strong behavior. So, so the, it's, it's actually fairly easy to tell after you've seen a few of these, these attempts, right? So you put something between their knees and you say, squeeze that. And your intention is, is like, Oh, I, I will use um, the internal rotation force to reduce the external rotation muscle activity, right? Kind of makes total sense. Except um, some people actually, when they squeeze their legs together, they actually ER because they're using, they're using the posterior lower strategy. And so they, you can actually see them kind of squeeze their, their butt together in the inferior aspect of, of that glute max, right? Mm. And so you give them a shot at it. And if they can't do it, that is not the exercise for them yet. Okay. Right. Okay. Because you just don't have the internal rotation to superimpose yet. And so then that's when you have to, you know, basically choose another activity. And it may be one of the other ones that you mentioned, especially like when you're like when Alex was talking about the, the gentle rolling on the back where you're, you're, you're sort of rolling from side to side, the, the mm. legs are kind of pistoning forward, which actually creates the turn. So that might be one of those activities that teaches them to, influence one side and then the other one side and then the other instead of trying to do something that's symmetrical just staying on your feet in that case uh in hook line yeah okay okay so just like yeah. manipulating the foot contacts got it yeah it's so it's almost like that it'll feel like they're turning through their feet got it a better explanation yeah yeah no that makes sense yeah so you, you do something like that because um, again, what they're what they're used to doing, their their the strategy that they're bringing to you is, I'm going to do everything symmetrically, right? So that's why you get the butt squeeze kind of a thing going on, mm -hmm. and that's what you're trying to eliminate under most circumstances. And so that that's where the asymmetrical uh, activity it becomes very very useful. Would you ever accuse somebody to actually bring their toe off the ground? Or do you think that that creates interference yeah. because, okay, got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, way, way back when, like when I started my training, that was one of the first ways I was taught to teach a glute bridge just to kind of like, <laughs> and I, I, but I, I just, I, I 
it's like appeared in my head and I wondered what your thoughts the mistake. Was. Here's the mistake. You called it a glute bridge. Right. Okay? Right. So, so hang on. So right away you're thinking muscle glute max. All I got to do is get you to feel a glute max. Right. When the reality is, is that it's a little bit more complex than that because if you try to do a, 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 a bridge where you're lifting the hips off the table without internal rotation capabilities, those are the people that they, 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 go, they go, do you feel your butt? And they, and they are squeezing it together like nobody's business. Like if you stuck a hundred dollar bill in there, you're never getting it back. And then they ER the proximal femur, their knees try to separate, right? And they're getting a really strong glute contraction. So it's a glute bridge, right? But you're not achieving what you were intended to achieve, which is to maintain that measure of internal rotation. Remember, they're both there at the same time. It's not an either or. It's an ER representation. You're moving from an ER representation towards internal rotation. When you lift up your hips off the table in that bridge, you're moving closer to internal rotation. If you don't have internal rotation capabilities, then you ramp up all of those ER muscles in an attempt to try to bring the legs together at the same time. And then that's where you get the cramp. That's why the hamstring, the, the people that complain about hamstring stuff is like anytime that they're trying to lift their, their hips off the ground, they don't have any IR with them. It's all ER stuff. Okay. I see. Okay. Okay. Cool. Very helpful. Thank you. Cool. Because there's no difference between the neuro patient and the ortho patient. Okay, just so we're clear. It's just a matter of constraints. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. We got a big weekend coming up. Um, iFast is moving this weekend. So today's pack up day, tomorrow's moving day. So we'll be in the new place by next week. It should be pretty, pretty exciting weekend um, with that in mind. Also, um, a big announcement, uh, Intensive 15. The Intensive 15 will be November 18th through the 21st. Um, I will be releasing that to the mentorship list, most likely today um, at some point in time so they can start uh, submitting their applications for that. Only eight people are going to be selected to come, so get your application in as quickly as possible once that is released. Like I said, probably later today, so November 18th through the 21st for the Intensive 15. Okay, digging in today's Q&A. This is from Christian um, from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conf Conference Call. Might be one of the coolest uh, videos that we've done in quite some time. Um, reason being, so, so Christian works in a neuro rehab setting, which right away you start thinking like, oh, that's different from everything else that we talk about. The reality is it's not different at all. And, and that's why this video is so important. So what, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk our way through a couple of, of situations that will allow you to see that movement occurs in the same way. So the rules don't change. It's always compression expansion. It's always ERs and IRs. We use some of the same activities. We just use it from a little bit of a different perspective because of the difference in the constraints. So if you've ever questioned how we're going to apply this model in different contexts, this is going to be the video for you. So even if you don't do neuro rehab, you're gonna take something away from this. If you do work in neuro rehab, it might be something that, that um, Maybe you think that, that something is different and it's not really that different. So, so again, I think it will be useful for you all. Um, 
If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. Enjoy your weekend. Um, if you want to help us move, hey, there's a thought. Come by iFast, and uh, we'll give you something to do. Um, if you don't, no big deal. We will see you next week. Hey, good morning, Bill. What's up? So one of the things that I've been uh, kind of wrestling with lately at work is I'm on the I'm on the neuro team, so majority of my caseload is neuro. So awesome. I've been trying to find a way to um, make 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 the model more um, cohesive within my treating. Yep. And so one of the one of the things that I noticed a lot of a lot of my caseload will be seated most of the time throughout the day. And, um, and they have a lot of what appears to be eccentric orientation along, uh, say from T7 down to the sacrum, it's very rounded. So I'm if I you. look at their, their measures, they <clears throat> yeah. appear to be, have a lot of ER. Yes, sir. And very, very little IR. Correct. Is what it appears to be. So yes. I'm thinking of incorporating back strengthening, like things that they could do at home, like prone positioning to try to improve their upright posture when they're standing because they, they seem to be very rounded. And, um, and, and so that's one of the things that's, that I've been, been wrestling with. And, and then finding ways to um, progress them against gravity since they don't have yep. that much time standing up yep. against gravity. Yep. Um, do you do mat work with them? I do. Yeah, I've done awesome. Okay, rolling with them. I try to have them do it at home, especially if they have a caregiver getting getting them up from the ground. Um, give me so uh, is this like just a combination of stuff from strokes to TBI to like exactly? Yeah, stroke TBI, Parkinson's. Perfect. Um, Okay. Okay. All right. So. You got a lot of ER, no IR, right? Yes, sir. If you're working on rolling, that's what I was. That's what I was. Hang saying. on, let's let's talk this through, okay? Because because it'll help everybody too. Because because there's no difference between the neuro patient and the ortho patient, okay? Just so we're clear, it's just a matter of constraints and such, right? The rules are the same. All movement occurs in the same way, all right? So I got crazy ER, no IR that tells me that I got spine that's, that's creating that ER representation. You understand that, right? And that's yes. what's presenting. So I need a spine that can go from an ER representation to the IR representation, okay? If I'm teaching rolling to somebody and I'm trying to capture more internal rotation capabilities, what direction, what, so from, from what position and then in what direction do you want to teach them to roll? Just as a general representation, let's just say that somebody's fully intact, but I'm trying to create internal rotation. Where do you want to, where do you want to take them? From what well, to what? I guess, uh, what, I think what would be optimal would either be rolling together as a unit or rolling from prone to supine. There mm. it is. That's your answer right there thousand percent. Okay. So this is the difference between rolling from prone, prone or supine to prone and prone to supine. Okay. Prone to supine requires that I drive the spine towards internal rotation. You see it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So now let's take your, let's take your, your neurologically insulted individual. Okay. We've got a change in constraints, but the rule doesn't change. So I start you in a position where I know you can be successful. So maybe I put you directly in sideline and then I'm teaching you to roll towards the mat from in, in the posterior direction. Do you see it? Okay. You can drive upper extremity that way. You can drive lower extremity that way. And so you're starting to teach them how to reorient the spine in a, in a low gravity situation first capture the position, then teach them how to produce force. So same rules that we were just talking with Zach with an ACL, it's like, okay, do they even have the position where they can produce force first? So when you talk about strengthening things, it's like, yeah, force production is important, but can they even acquire the position? Do I wanna to try to teach them to produce force in an ER representation? Probably not gonna to work too well, right? Exactly, okay? And so, um, you know, uh, so you start there, you can apply manual resistance into that, that, that rotation, right? Um, so this is um, PNF, like, so PNF will, will be a wonderful way for you to drive that stuff because it's, it's based on helical orientations, right? So you apply the resistance in the helical orientation. So you can lead them with resistance or you can have them push into resistance Right. And so then you start to develop the force production within a narrow range. And then you just expand that range to the best of whatever capabilities they have available based on the remaining constraints. You drive head, you drive thorax, you drive pelvis. Right. Uh, One of the biggest mistakes that is always made in neuro rehab is standing people up and walking them too soon. Mm -hmm. Okay, because they were walking two days ago before the stroke. Surely that's the goal is to get them back up and walking. Okay, um, Christian, I'm going to assume you're a, a reasonably normal human being. When you were born, how long did it take you to figure out how to walk? Mm. A year. Well, yeah. Start to learn. Yeah. Because yeah. you had a big giant head, right? Mm -hmm. That was one third of your body mass and you had this tiny little body and you were stuck to the ground because you couldn't change shape. And then you started kicking around and you started experimenting and you go, hey, this big giant head, I can use this to my advantage. If I can get it swinging in the right direction, I can actually roll. And then you started to turn and then you started to coordinate things. It's the same process for them. They have new constraints. They don't know how to control them put them in the most complex atmosphere up on two feet. It's a circus act, right? How many animals on earth walk on two legs as well as humans? None except for one ape. One, one giant gorilla can walk on two legs like a human being. It scares me to death every time I watch that video. Okay, so you treat them the same way. You say, okay, I know what positions I need for force production. Let's get you there first. How can I make you successful? I'm gonna put you in the position that allows you to be most successful. Then I'm gonna drive the positions that produce the IR, the force production. Then I'm gonna slowly expand that excursion so you can step into an early representation. You can push through a middle and then push off the leg. You see it? You create, you create the atmosphere, you put them in the positions to be successful. There's no difference. There is no difference. 
It's just a matter of understanding the constraints. That's why you do your evaluation. You say, what do we have available to us right now to work with? Right now, yeah. Okay. And uh, so, um, so one of the, as long as they can tolerate the positions, one of the more uh, passive positions could just be kind of <laughs> getting, getting them in prone and um, protracting and breathing there for a few minutes and then try to get them assisted rolling, helping them with whatever they need so they can be successful, yeah. eventually rolling on their own as much as they can and then so, resist. So think, so think about this. Think about this for a second. You put, him, you put him in sideline. Okay, starting this. Hang on. I'm just, I'm just talking. It's like, I don't know yeah. where you're going to start this guy, but okay. just put him in sideline. And then all I do is say, take your arm back like this and, and roll to your back. And then you help him back to sideline. And then you roll to your back. Mm. Okay. And then he gets really good at that. And then you take a bunch of pillows and you put them in front of him and you say, roll over on top of the pillows first. So he's going to face down a little bit, but he's propped mm -hmm. up on pillows. So it's not full prone. And you say, oh. reach back and then make your turn. Yeah. You see, I'm getting that. And then you yeah. lead them, you lead them into this. And then eventually it can turn into like a prone to sideline to supine kind of a thing. You see it? I see it. I see it. <laughs> okay. when, when it comes time, when it comes time to stand them up from a seated position and you got this ER spine representation, what do you got to teach them to do? stand up in this case i'm gonna have to teach them to internally rotate through the spine okay how do you do that exhale and and try to extend the back as he's going to keep keep um keep a good stack and exhale as you stand up okay so what if what if you took a towel you wrap it around behind their their pelvis. So it goes behind their pelvis and you got both ends of the towel and they take their hands and they put them on your shoulders and they push you away and you pull uh, the towel wow. at the same time. Yes. Okay? This is a box squat. You got to teach them how to box squat. Okay. How to box squat, but try to keep, um, you got to put them in a force. You got to put them in a force producing position, right? So that's IR of the spine, right? That's nutation of the sacrum. So you assist them into that position. They push on you to borrow, to borrow a phrase from my buddy, Jay Chung. He says, tell them to push you away like every other woman in your life. Right. <laughs> right. So, so, so you teach them to push. So this position right here 90 degrees. is, is middle P for the thorax. Okay. I'm assisting them into a position of middle P for the pelvis. And I teach them to pressurize. You understand? So will, will this be Valsalva or pressurize? They, it can teach be? them to, to exhale first. Okay. Exhale first. So yeah. they, they, they need to be able to, to, to alter pressure. They're going to naturally hold their breath because the minute you, the minute you start to bring their pelvis off the, off the seat, they're going to hold their breath because of the amount of force that's going to be required. Yep. Okay. But do you see how you build this? It's literally yes. the same process that you went through to learn how to walk. They have to, uh, they have to learn the new constraints, whatever they have available to them. And then you substitute for whatever you need to substitute for. So maybe this becomes the AFO. What does an AFO do? IR for the ankle. 
Yeah, it, it holds it in middle plus or minus a couple of degrees. So it stores a little bit of energy for you, but it keeps you in middle propulsion, doesn't it? That's why they don't. That's why they don't keep an AFO in plantar flexion. It's like you can't walk like that. You got to be able to put force into the ground. So I put the foot in middle P so that the middle P goes up through the pelvis and up into the thorax. You have to recreate that for them. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. You're yeah. very welcome.